Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk features conversations with two congressional candidates on today's program. Rick Doherty is the Democrat running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 15th District. The 15th District includes parts of Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, Lehigh, and Northampton counties. Rick Doherty, welcome to the program. Scott, good morning. Thank you for having me on. This is not your first run for this this seat in the 15th Congressional District, but why did you decide to run again? Well, I first ran in 2012, and the number one issue that I had at that point was uh, unfair trade that I thought uh, was damaging the economy, damaging our national security, and especially hurting working families. Well, Four years later, those those issues are, are even more important, and I believe the damage it's done to our country is even more evident. So that's why I'm running a second time. So you would point to those as uh, the, the most important issues facing the nation right now? Yeah, and Scott, the other thing is it is the issue that divides myself and Charlie Dent more than any other, and it is also the issue that, as you know, is at the forefront of the national discussion um, at the presidential level. It certainly was there at the primaries. And Congress is fairly evenly divided on this. Fast-track legislation, which is allowing the Trans-Pacific Partnership to, to go through on one vote, it only passed, Scott, by one vote. So it really is what I think is the central issue that our nation is facing. Congress is evenly divided. Charlie Dent and I are on opposite sides of it. So it is where I could actually affect some change with others that I think would be significant. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, not only do uh, you differ with Congressman Dent on this, Congressman uh, Charlie Dent, uh, when he was a guest on our program last week, talked about his support for the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And what he said at that time was that uh, he felt that if the United States did not enter into this partnership, that China would dominate Asia and the United States would be left behind. What do you say to that? You know, Scott, what's really interesting about that is that is also what the Obama administration says. So when it comes to trade, the alliances have shifted more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. You've got Tea Party Republicans that are, that are aligned with liberal Democrats. You've got Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump both aligning on fair trade. It's a very interesting situation. Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, is not about China writing the rules or us writing the rules. It's not even as much about tariffs, although that's, that's an issue. It is more about corporate governance and corporations being able to sue nations like our own if they're not able to get the profits they think they deserve. It really is a shifting of power away from nations to corporations. That also happened with NAFTA. And one of the things I'm sure you're aware of is the, uh, the company that was looking to put the pipeline from Canada um, across the United States, and our Congress uh, denied it, and the executive branch stopped it. They're now suing us. I think it's for $15 billion to say, because of what our government did, that company's losing money, and they want to sue us for $15 billion. Well, the Trans-Pacific Partnership basically expands that, or would expand that, to 12 other nations. And so even that 
is something I think is, is, is completely wrong, and it has nothing to do with China. The, uh, Scott, the other thing with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, where China is involved, even though the word China is never mentioned in that, and they're not part of any of the countries that might be signing it, is the standard for what constitutes something built in another country, for example, with a car, is down to about 40%. So that means 60% of the parts of a car um, could be and probably would be made in China. They could be shipped down to Vietnam because Vietnam's part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and then sold to us through free trade. So China can benefit and probably will benefit immensely from the Trans-Pacific Partnership as it currently is written because that amount of manufactured products do not have to be made in the country of origin. They can be made in China. Well, what's different then, using automobiles as an example, what's different now? I mean, for example, uh, you open up, uh, you see on the side of a window, uh, Toyota or a Kia that, uh, you know, proudly made in Indiana or Tennessee that uh, it says it's manufactured in the United States. And we all know that uh, many of those parts do come from overseas. But so, so the difference is that we would be getting things um, even currently now. We'll, we'll get a car that says it's made in South Korea, but, but a large percentage of the parts come from communist China. Um, and, and it's not even just about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, I don't support that. It looks as if the administration is going to try to get it approved in the lame duck session. They can't do it now because it's just the, the people of this country do not support it. It's not popular. But in addition to that, Scott, we should, I believe we should be getting out of NAFTA, and we either have to seriously renegotiate our relationship in the, in the World Trade Organization, or we have to get out of that um, and then create a new trade, World Trade Agreement, because both NAFTA and the World Trade Organization, with China in it, continue to really damage our economy and, and our national security. So I think that is the first thing we need to be doing, not only the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but these other trade agreements have to be renegotiated. Now, you touched on this, but you are a Democrat, Ronnie. What you just described sounds like something that Donald Trump has, has talked about with uh, getting out of NAFTA and opposing TPP and renegotiating trade deals. And Bernie Sanders. Uh, Scott, that's why I'm saying this is a very unusual time in politics. So what would you recommend, then? What do you support when it comes to trade and changing it? Okay, so the, the first thing I would look to do, um, I believe NAFTA has a six-month-and-out clause. I would propose legislation, um, and or co-sponsored, because I'm sure there's others who would propose it, and just say we're going to get out of NAFTA. This is our six-month notice. And then we look to renegotiate trade with Canada and Mexico, when NAFTA was passed, part of how it was sold is that labor regulations and protections, environmental protections, human rights protections would all be in place, and it would lift the Mexican economy and build a very vibrant Mexican middle class. Well, just this past January, Mexican workers who make printers for Lexmark, right on the other side of the Rio Grande, I mean, just with an eye shot of the United States, make $8 a day. 
there was an article that I have read, they're looking to go on strike, and if they do go on strike, they'll be fired. And one of the women who was interviewed said at $8 a day, which you and I could obviously imagine, she barely has enough money to keep her shack warm in the winter. So that is not helping her, obviously, and it is not helping our workers because we've lost those jobs. And it's not helping our economy because there is not a big Mexican middle class that can buy our products. So we, we, if we have a free trade agreement, and this is what we used to have uh, beginning in 47, post-World War II, we had trade agreements with countries that were similar to us in values, in worker rights, um, in environmental protections. That makes sense to me. But to have a free trade agreement with third-world-type nations, and then they don't live up to what they say they're going to do, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I looked at your website, and I know you've campaigned on this, but when you've talked about uh, trade and making uh, you know, making some changes in our trade agreements, you you said that this will bring back American manufacturing jobs, and you said that it's it's just that simple. I don't know. It doesn't sound that simple. How do, how do you uh, bring back those manufacturing jobs by renegotiating these trade deals? Well, it's tariffs. It's so what what you're looking at now in in Mexico, for example. Um, it's already started and it's on the uh, planning stage for billions of dollars of investment is moving into Mexico to manufacture cars. Eighty percent of those cars are going to be sold to us. So if we would renegotiate that agreement and pretty much say, you know, if you're not meeting our standards, which you're not in Mexico, then you're not going to be able to to build cars down there and bring them up here for free. We still have 27% of the consumer market in the world. We're we're at 27. China's moved up to 8. Germany's at, uh, Japan's at 7. Great Britain is at 4. And Germany's at 5. So, we are by far the number one consumer market. People want to, people need to sell to us. And that is the leverage we have to say, okay, you're going to sell to us? Then we can write rules that benefit us, and that means manufacture here. Or if you manufacture in your own country, then you have to be similar to us in regulations, and your markets have to be open to us. You know, there that, are, how that would work. There, there are a lot of different aspects to it. None of this is is real simple. But just looking at one of it, consumer prices. Uh, you know, Americans are used to paying, you know, fairly low. Inflation has right. has not been an issue lately. But you know, if we would get into a trade war, and I don't think that's what you're recommending here. But if there's tariffs involved and we don't have the kind of trade we do now, consumer prices for some products could rise. Right. So Scott, so what will happen is. I agree with you. Our TVs will be more expensive. Our furniture will be more expensive. Our cell phones will be more expensive. But our economy is not based on us being able to buy a whole lot of stuff. It's based on a high school graduate being able to purchase a home. So getting the manufacturing jobs back, lower moderate skilled manufacturing jobs, not high tech, is what would allow more people who have a high school diploma to have stable work, to have a decent wage, and to be able to buy the home. That's, that's, and our home ownership um, rates are, are at historically low levels at this point, as is labor participation, and it's because of trade. But that's the basis that we've always had, Scott, I think you would agree, for a successful economy. 
it's not that you have five televisions, it's that you have a home. And then you can buy this or that to furnish your home or to live your life. But it's home ownership for high school graduates that is what I think we have to do in manufacturing jobs in my lifetime is, is what has provided that. So what you're envisioning is the United States in the 60s and 70s. Pretty much. It's not a radical notion. And it is because uh, the GATT trade agreements of uh, beginning in 47 had that in place. And we first started running into currency manipulation issues with Japan, which you remember back in the 70s and 80s, and so much was coming into this country. And also Japan was blocking market access for our products. So that was the first kind of bump in the road that I saw, that trade was becoming not fair for this country. But it has accelerated to the point where it doesn't make sense to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Just a quick background. I had someone point out to me that the, that Ford plan in the United States, and Trump has talked about this, is staying open to shift to truck production. The Mexico plant will make cars for foreign distribution. All right, we're going to talk about a lot more issues here with Rick Dockerty. You're listening to a Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Rick Dockerty. He is the Democrat running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 15th District. The 15th District includes parts of Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, Lehigh, and Northampton counties. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. All right, I do want to get into some other issues. Um, you know, when there is an incumbent like uh, Republican Charlie Dent, often an election is a referendum on that incumbent. How do you differ, and why are you a better candidate than uh, Charlie Dent? Well, it's really on trade. I really look at the differences based on issues, and it's not that Charlie's better or I'm better. Um, it, it really is issue-based. And we have a number of, of differing opinions. I mean, trade is, is the most serious, but, but, but there's more than that. Um, and I also think that there's, a, there's this sense, Scott, that Congress doesn't seem to get much done. And part of the reason for that, and I used to work for a congressman. I worked for Congressman Paul McHale. He was the last Democrat to have the 15th Congressional District. And, and Paul was different. He did not, Paul did not spend time raising money. Um, he wasn't on the phone. Um, and the problem with that, Scott, that I see that makes you less effective is you're not paying attention to the legislation. Legislation is boring stuff. You know, there, there's details on, on, on page 53 that you've got to figure out. If, if, and members of Congress do this. If, if you spend half of your time raising money to get reelected, you're focusing on keeping your own job. You're not actually focusing on doing the job you already were hired to do. And Charlie, in his last... Uh, campaign, he didn't have an opponent, Scott, and he spent a million dollars. And I've asked him about that a couple times, and he's never really explained it. And it's part of that cycle of just raising money, spending money, just to stay in office that I think has caused, and this is both sides of the aisle, members of Congress to really not know what they're voting on and, and to not spend the time to be legislators. The boring work of being a legislator where you're looking in detail at health care policy, you're not looking at sound bites, you're looking at trade policy. The Congressional Budget Office in August put forward a report that said if federal spending increases at the rate of inflation, about 2% a year, and there is no tax increase, that in eight years, We'll have a balanced budget. 
that should be low-hanging fruit that any Democrat and Republican can agree on to say, okay, we're going to just increase by 2%, maybe we'll cut here, maybe we'll do something there, and Congress should be able to solve it. But, Scott, it just seems like even something like that they don't seem to be able to figure out. Well, okay. Now, you know, another issue in which uh, you and Congressman Dent differ greatly on is abortion. Uh, and I want to remind the audience, you are the Democrat. Charlie Dent is the Republican. But uh, you're pro-life, and Charlie Dent is, uh, is pro-choice. Right. Uh, and that is not why I'm running. And as you know, with Roe v. Wade in place, there's very little that the House of Representatives can do. Um, what was um, a, a, almost a, well, passed by the House, Charlie didn't support it, and I would have, uh, was the amendment that at 20 weeks, when a fetus um, is able to feel pain, and I know that's in dispute, but I, I would agree that it can at that point, um, that abortions except for uh, rape, and incest, or the life or health of the mother uh, would not be allowed. I would support that. That is about the only thing I can think of that couldn't come before the House of Representatives in the next two years. We will have a new president in January, though, and one of uh, the most significant issues is, uh, you know, which uh, candidates will, uh, you know, excuse me, which uh, uh, nominees will be made to the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. Abortion, obviously, is one of those issues. Uh, Since you are pro-life, would you support repealing if the Supreme Court got a case that uh, would would uh, repeal Roe v. Wade? Yes, or to modify it. Um, and then it would take it back to the states to be able to, to decide. Um, I, I would be in support of that. So I know you're not running for the Senate, but if, if that be the case, would you support the Republican nominees, uh, nominee to the Supreme Court as opposed to the Democrats? No, because I don't have that as a litmus test for uh, the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, Many people on both sides have that as their top issue. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. You also put a lot of emphasis on programs geared toward older Americans. In fact, you work in a senior center. But uh, older Americans like Medicare, Social Security, senior housing and protection. Uh, Tell me what uh, you have in mind for that. With Social Security, there should be a cost of living increase that matches the actual on-the-ground cost-of-living increase that senior citizens uh, have to deal with. So recently, I think it was 0.3%, which is nothing. In, in, in past years, it's been zero. And I do work at a senior center, so I know that the cost of living for senior citizens has gone up. So there needs to be a better way to look at the cost-of-living increases just for senior citizens, um, and then they would get those increases that just help them stay afloat financially. The other thing with Social Security, Scott, is we should eliminate the wage tax. And um, eliminating the wage tax makes Social Security solvent for another 30 years. It takes it up to 2060 or 2070. And it's a very simple fix. Um, There's no wage cap on Medicare, and there shouldn't be one on Social Security. With Medicare, I do not agree with the voucher program at all. I do not, I cannot envision how somebody in their 70s would be able to have a voucher and go out on the free market and get somebody to pay for insurance for them. Mm-hmm. It's the, the Medicare system, we, we, need to, we need to continue to go towards health outcomes and not just fee-for-service. 
but the Medicare system is is working fairly well, and I think it's a it's a democratic success, as is Social Security. Well, getting back to Social Security, you say you wouldn't, uh, you don't think there should be a wage cap. What about a means test? I mean, uh, I don't think so. You don't, you don't th- th- you don't think so? No, because Social Security is that contract that it is something that we have all paid into. Scott, you paid into it. I paid into it. Uh, the laborers laborer has paid into it, and so has the millionaire. And I think it's a unique American value that says we're all in this together. It's not charity. We're, we're working together. We're paying in, and then we're getting the benefits at the end of the day when we retire. And I think that aspect of Social Security, that value, that it's not welfare and it's not a handout, is very, very important to keep. And, and that's why I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go for a means test. In, in talking, though, to many people who not, know a whole lot more about this than I do, uh, they would say that uh, you know that Social Security, if we continue on the path that we are now, that you know it's not going to be solvent in years. That we have to make some changes with Social Security. So you know, right now you're only taxed over income of one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. That a means test will come later. That retirement age, the age in which you can get Social Security, may be raised. What do you say to that? I think that's horrible. Um, I, I I work at a senior center, and there is. I'm sorry to say this, but there's a tremendous amount of age discrimination in the workplace. I see people that are highly qualified. Most of my staff is over 65, and they're outstanding people. But I see people that are highly qualified who are senior citizens or close to it, and they can't find work. So to increase the level that somebody needs to retire is going to make the age that somebody needs to retire is going to make that even harder. Um, So I'm completely opposed to it. But there are people who would come back. And I I think that philosophically, most people would agree with you. But realistically, they would say that we have to do something or that money's not going to be there for anyone. Well, the wage, lifting the wage cap, Scott, does take it out another 30 years. But it is another example of the problem with trade. If you look at the the 7 million manufacturing jobs that the U.S. Um, Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates we've lost in 79, and you put in, say, it's $30,000 a year that somebody would get, and what the Social Security wage tax from that would be, just from that worker, it's $240 billion, or those workers, it'd be $240 billion over 10 years. And then you double that because of the employer's contribution. So when you look at a lost job, it's not only that particular family that's damaged. It's, it's the local economy because there isn't money circulating around to small businesses because that person isn't working. But it's also Medicare and Social Security because they are not paying those taxes because they're not employed or because they're working at a low-wage job or a part-time job. So the repercussions are wide, and it does include Social Security. Uh, and that, that's part of the issue. We have fewer people engaged in the workforce. Mr. Dockery, we only have a few minutes left. And I want to try to touch on a couple more issues. Uh, national security, uh, you mentioned when I did go to your website and you've been campaigning that we are not fighting the Soviet Union any longer. And right. as a result, uh, we need to change how we do uh, fight uh, ISIS, for example. W- what are you recommending there? Well, first of all, you got to make sure that any spending um, is towards our national security when it comes to defense. There's a fair amount of spending, and there's a lot in the, in the Pentagon budget that's not audited, and I think there's a fair amount of spending 
that isn't related to our current national security threats. They're, they're, they're looking at tanks, they're looking at, at planes that aren't that effective anymore. And then we've got cyber attacks we need to work on. Um, we have uh, intelligence services we have to improve around the world. And I do think we are missing the fact that probably the number one national security threat that's growing every day is communist China. And that seems to be talked about very little. You get articles in the paper, Scott, here and there, um, where you can see China's flexing their military muscle. But they, I think, are in the very short term going to be the number one national security threat we have to address. We are almost out of time. And, uh, Mr. Doherty, what I'd like to do is give a candidate an opportunity to leave message with uh, leave a message with voters. What would that message be for you? All I would do is ask people to look at where Charlie Dent and I are on trade, because that is where something can change in the next Congress. And if you think our trade policies have not been helpful to the country, then I would ask you to give me a chance to get in there with others and make some changes in the next Congress and seriously bring manufacturing jobs back. Rick Doherty is the Democrat running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 15th District. The 15th District includes parts of Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, Lehigh, and Northampton counties. Mr. Doherty, welcome, or <laughs> thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The 16th Congressional District includes parts of Lancaster, Chester, and Berks counties. With the retirement of longtime Republican Congressman Joe Pitts this year, the seat is now open, one of the few across the country, and as a result, it is getting national attention. As part of WITF's election 2016 coverage, today we're joined by Republican candidate Lloyd Smucker. Senator Smucker, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. A lot of people in uh, our listening area are familiar with uh, Lloyd Smucker since you've been in the state Senate since uh, 2009, but you'll be representing a bigger area. For those who are not familiar with your work in the state Senate, sure. maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So as you said, I've uh, served in the state Senate for the past eight years, and it's been a wonderful privilege to represent the people of of my community. It's a great area to represent. Uh, the 16th is a larger area, includes some of not only Lancaster County, but some of Berks and some of uh, Chester County. And I've been making some wonderful new friends there as well. Really uh, look forward to the potential opportunity to serve. Prior to serving in the state Senate, um, I was a, a private business owner. Um, I was, so I was born and raised in uh, the community that I live in now uh, in Lancaster County. Um, I was just a really 60-second background. I was born into an Amish home, uh, and uh, I was the first. I was number 10 of 12 kids, um, and so I was the first in my family. My parents left the Amish when I was uh, five years old, so I grew up sort of Amish Mennonite. But I was the first in my family to graduate from high school. Uh, Amish tradition, generally right, that yeah. education ends at eighth or ninth grade. When I approached with my, my parents with that idea, they two conditions. One, I had to attend a private school, so I'm a graduate of Lancaster Mennonite, a great private school there. Um, and um, I had to pay my own tuition. And so I uh, hung drywall at night uh, to earn the dollars to pay for my school during the day. That led to, right after graduation, um, the older brother owned that small drywall company. He wanted to move on to other things and asked whether I'd be interested in buying that company, uh, which had only a few employees at the time. Um, and so for $1,000, I was in business as a 17-year-old. Um, and then I went to went to college at night uh, to learn you know, what the heck I was doing running a business. I didn't know much about it at the time. But I started operating that business out of a spare bedroom in my parents' home and out of their garage. And we grew it over 25 years into a 
uh, regional leader in the type of construction commercial contracting that uh, we were doing with over uh, 150 employees. And so uh, that that was my background. I then um, had sold my interest in the business and uh, was looking for another business opportunity and then um, was approached. I'd served as a township supervisor and found I really enjoyed trying to find solutions to problems and improve the lives of, of uh, the folks in my community. Found I enjoyed that. And when I... Um, when my predecessor in the state senate uh, decided to retire, had folks come to me and suggest I consider running, and I did that. Uh, never expected I was one that never really expected I would be serving in a position like that. Didn't expect I would be running for Congress one day, but uh, it's been a wonderful experience and a great community to represent. Would you be the first member uh, of Congress born into an Amish home? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that, uh, but possibly so. I, I would I, I would guess that there's a, there's a pretty good chance yeah. chance of that. So let's get to some of the issues. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you see as the biggest issue facing the nation right now? Yeah, I think I mean there's several. Uh, one is I'll, I'll start with my own uh, background. Um, you know what I describe this this idea that you can start with with little or nothing, and you can you can work hard, you, you live by the rules, uh, and you can achieve your dreams. You can provide for your family. You can achieve some success. And there are you know, hundreds of stories like that, thousands, you know, lots of stories like that in my community, in the district, in the state, and across the country. Um, and it's what we call the American dream. And, um, you know, I, I saw in my business, I think it would be harder today 35 years later, I started that business about 35 years ago. I think it would be harder today for a 17-year-old to do what we were able to do then. You have increasing government regulation. You have tightening of credit that you know I had to rely on as a business owner. And so in some ways, I think the growth of government has held businesses back and is holding people back. Um, I saw as we grew the business, we had increasing government regulation, and you were you were committing more and more resources to complying with those regulations, to paying taxes, and that's taking dollars out of our economy. Um, and, you know, I want to work to ensure that every, my kids, my grandkids, I have three kids of my own now, uh, they, they're able, they have the opportunity for the American dream that I grew up with. Um, and I think uh, in order to do that, we have to get our economy growing again at a more robust rate. We're seeing at a 1% to 2% growth some of the most anemic uh, or one of the most anemic recoveries uh, actually since the Great Depression. Um, and um, there are plenty of ways that we can promote and achieve the kind of economic growth that we've typically been capable of in the past. And that's one of the things I... Uh, really would like to work on. Well, let's talk about that sure. American dream, uh, because you're right. There are thousands, if not millions, of stories like that right. in the in the United States. But there are those who say today that there are fewer people who can achieve that American dream because of economic reasons. Right. That uh, whether they're in a household where you know they're or living in a place where there aren't a lot of good jobs the jobs aren't paying as much uh they don't have the opportunity to go to college like some other people so you know things have changed since when you started your business at at 17 right. and, and one on what can the congress of the united states the next administration do about that but, well several things uh one is tax reform so we create a uh, we, we simplify the tax system we have, that we have in place. We uh, make it more understandable. We make it more reliable. 
we give through our tax through through creating a lower taxes for business and eliminating the loopholes you give businesses more reason to invest um, and then the second part of the equation is our regulatory environment we've cr- we have seen the growth of regulation and bureaucracy we almost have today a fourth branch of government that really isn't accountable to elected officials um, most of the regulations put in place is not voted on by congress is not um, voted on by folks who are elected and so um, I think if we if we give investors if we give them the confidence that if they invest in business they start new business they, they um, will see the benefit of that they're able to take that uh, risk that will generate reward for them we can see an economic boom like we've seen during the dot-com era it, this kind of policy has created that before and it can again there's a lot of money on the sideline uh, today that could be used to grow companies and create jobs. Um, and we see it in our middle-income uh, wage earners. Uh, our wages are, have stagnated and declined in some cases. And it doesn't need to be this way. I've just read a um, Wall Street Journal article the, uh, the other day about the decline in the start and growth of small businesses. These are the. This is what is creating the opportunity. Small businesses that have grown to be larger business generally are the. That's where we see the job growth that creates the opportunity for people all across the all across the country. And so, implementing those kind of policies to encourage that kind of growth is uh, is something that can be done, has been done in the past, and will result in a lot of opportunity. A couple of things there, Senator. Uh, you mentioned the dot com era and. That became a bubble that burst and uh, did create a real hole in our economy at that time. Um, The other thing is, when you're talking about cutting corporate taxes, how do you make up for that income? I mean, I think I know what your answer is, but, uh, you know, those who have looked at this kind of uh, proposal have said we could add billions, if not trillions of dollars to our national debt that, you know, we would just increase that debt. Uh, Well. Well, first of all, the you, you need a system that works for our uh, wage-earning families. Um, and today there are a lot of loopholes in the system that benefit big business. Well, we can eliminate those loopholes and we can reduce the rates. Um, and the the additional economic activity will result in, in uh, new income. Essentially, we will grow our way out of the deficit that we have. That's part of the... Part of the issue we can we've seen that before, um, and uh, obviously the national debt is a huge problem. Um, it uh, I think threatens you know twenty billion dollar or trillion uh, dollars uh, threatens our economic future, uh, or at least if you don't agree with that, we know that we are relying we're mortgaging our kids and our grandkids' future. We're asking them to pay down the road for what we're doing today, um, and so we have to. Uh, uh, begin by creating an opportunity for the stronger growth that will that will result in more uh, tax revenue coming into the system. But and I just want to clarify here now you said about uh, you know cutting corporate taxes what about uh, individual taxes? Yeah, well you you want to you want to decrease the rates and simplify the system. I I think we ought to be individuals should be able to fill out their tax return on a postcard essentially. It should be that simple. 
Um, and, um, you know, we, we can get there by, again, as I said, eliminating the complexity of the system, making it easy to understand, eliminating the loopholes, and you can reduce the rates at the same time. You know, I saw that in your website when you mentioned, uh, you know, making it uh, that your tax return could fit on a postcard. And, boy, that sounds great. But, uh, I mean, we all have, even if we have a mortgage, we have deductions. How can you, right. how can you realistically do that? Well, maybe just maybe an eight and a half by eleven. All right, How well, we're doing that? it. Yeah. All right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but still, what you're talking about? The point about? is, we can simplify it uh, far beyond what we have today. It's a very complex uh, system today. Mm-hmm. We're talking with uh, Lloyd Smucker, who is the Republican candidate for Congress in the 16th congressional district. Uh, WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing LLP. All right, let's get into a few other issues here. Uh, one. One of the big issues, not just in your campaign, in your district, but across the country, is support for Donald Trump, the Republican candidate for president. It almost has become the issue sure. in in your campaign. Why do you support, continue to support Donald Trump? Well, um, first of all, some I, I have said throughout the campaign that I disagreed with uh, his, his approach, with his language and things that he has said about other folks, and I was particularly appalled by the comments he made in 2005 in regards to women that I, I thought were despicable. And I've, I've said repeatedly, publicly, that you know, I do not condone that. I think it's despicable. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, uh, you know, there are folks that are part of the Never Trump campaign. I'm sort of a Never Hillary uh, person. Um, I think that uh, her misuse of classified information while she was Secretary of State uh, was uh, something that is just inexcusable. And then she repeatedly lied to the American people uh, about that. Um, and so I think she's someone that can't be trusted. But more importantly, I think that the world has become a far more dangerous place while she was Secretary of State and during the this um, this administration, We're, we through this policy of having of leading from behind, uh, we've created a vacuum that has been filled by ISIS and Russia, and so on. And so, um, for me, the you know we 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 know it's going to be either Trump or Hillary uh, when we in what thirteen days now, one of them will be the next president of the United States. Uh, what I'm excited about, and what I've been talking with the uh, people of the 16th Congressional District and asking their support for, is promoting an agenda that will create strong uh, national, uh, better national securities, create a strong military to ensure that, that will provide for uh, tax reform, will provide for uh, regulatory reform that I believe will promote the American dream that we talked about. The, the congressional Republicans are already now putting forward an agenda that I'm really excited about. I think we will be the party of ideas and opportunity, and that will be our agenda next year. If we put that on the president's desk, we want to have support. Uh, m- much of what we're doing, Hillary Clinton will not support. There have been discussions with Trump's people, and he would support the agenda that I think is important. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to the policies that each of them promote. It comes down to the Supreme Court picks, which will obviously affect us for generations. And I like the list that, that uh, Donald Trump has put forward. And so I 
continue to hope and support uh, uh, Trump as our next president. So it's it, but you know, with, with Donald Trump, it is not just uh, women. You know, the immigration. Uh, you know, he has been called a bigot. Uh, right. You know how he has talked about uh, uh, different racial groups, ethnic groups. We have an email here from um, uh, someone says, "As a man who was raised in the Mennonite tradition, how can you justify the hateful speech that is taking place in this election? And how can you support Donald Trump, who epitomizes all that's wrong with today's society?" Sure. Well, I can't justify that. I mean, I was raised in a household where. Um, you know, we didn't have a whole lot, but we were always my my parents taught me to uh, reach out and help other people. We were taught the golden rule: you you treat others as you'd like to be treated. So you can't uh, defend or justify some of the comments that that, that Trump has made. But I also have talked about Hillary. I can't defend her actions either. So then, um, why so, support either one of them? Well, it comes back to the policy, uh, as I said before, and I I you know hope that we have the opportunity, if we're able to keep the majority in the House and the Senate, of putting forward an agenda that will move us in the right direction, and I want a president who will support that policy. You know, we have a divided country. I'm not telling you anything right. you don't know. Uh, you worked in Harrisburg. It's not quite as divided in Harrisburg as it is in Washington, but, uh, uh, you know, we, over the last uh, few years, uh, this has become a polarized society. What can you say? And, you know, there are those who say if Donald Trump is elected, that it will just become even more polarized. But what can you do as a member of Congress to reach across the aisle to try to bridge that divide? I think it's a great question. And, you know, I I think in some ways Pennsylvania is sort of a microcosm of what we see in the country as well, because we do have, unlike some states that, you know, where, where, where most folks have a similar idea about the path forward, uh, you have some very differing viewpoints in in Pennsylvania, and so you have a divided government here as well. Um, and I've I've served there eight years, and my approach has, has been to go there. And I I'm a conservative. I have ideas about our values and where we should be going, um, and I'll stand for those values. But you also have to understand, and this is what I've attempted to do, uh, that. People are coming there to serve, represent their communities with very different experiences, very different constituency, and so they're going to disagree with you. Um, and so the ability to listen, to understand where someone else is coming from, and the ability to be able to know what they're looking to accomplish and then promoting your own uh, values is a negotiation just as in business. And so... Um, you know that's been my approach, and I've, so I've worked with people uh, on uh, issues across the aisle. Worked with both Republicans and Democrats to try to solve problems, and that's that's my approach. We should be looking. You know, I don't particularly care about the ideology, although you know I have a, have a certain viewpoint. But we should be we should be looking to solve problems and finding ways to move our country in the right direction. I'll give you an example of it. Um, I've done some work on – I serve as the chair of the Education Committee in the Senate and and uh, you know, been doing some work in regards to ensuring that we have a more equitable system and a more accountable system. We want to ensure that every child has the opportunity for the education that prepares them for you know, college or career, whatever it may be. Um, and um, Pennsylvania, it was widely recognized that, that Pennsylvania had a fairly, had an inequitable system of funding our 500 districts. So we put forward, uh, put together a commission. Uh, I was a member of that commission. 
um, and introduced the legislation that that put that um, resulted in the new funding formula proposed by that commission in the law. It was unanimously supported by the commission after months of work that went into it, um, and then supported almost unanimously by the legislature and signed by a Democrat governor. That it's a perfect example of what can be accomplished if members or individuals are willing to, um, you know sort of work across that, that party line and, and get things done, because that commission was was uh, comprised of both Democrats and Republicans. Speaking of education, yeah. you oppose Common Core. Uh, why do you oppose it? So I, uh, I think um, we, we want to push as much of the decision-making in regards to education down to the state level, and then at the state level, where I currently am, you want to push as much as that decision-making down to local communities, local uh, di- uh, boards, school boards that are elected by the f- uh, individuals in their communities, by the voters in their communities, should be making as much of the decision making in regards to the education of stu- students there as possible. So I'm, you know, my idea is, or what I uh, support is pushing the decision making down to the state and the local level wherever we can. Um, and I think every state should have the opportunity to to um, establish their own regulations. It shouldn't be something that is proposed from the federal level, which is what Common Core um, was in many ways. Um, And so in Pennsylvania, for instance, we've had state standards in place since the mid-'90s because you do need to know that you have to identify what students should, sort of the body of knowledge that they have when they leave your system. You want to ensure that, that they... They, um, you know, their learning has prepared them, and so you, you, I, I do support some sort of uh, regulation. But, but well, the Pennsylvania standards have been in place; we've updated them, and that's where it should remain. Well, let's talk about that because sure. we live in a global economy, right. as you well know. And the idea behind Common Core was that there would be some national standards that a student who graduates from high school in Pennsylvania, they decide to go to college or technical school or you know look for a job elsewhere that they're getting as good of education in in Pennsylvania as they would in another state. Sure. So doesn't, I mean, we left No Child Left Behind behind um, because of it just not working out. But doesn't there need to be some national standards? Sure. Um, and by the way, the ESSA law, Every Student Succeeds Act, which was just um, passed by Congress and signed into law by the governor, which is sort of the rewrite of the National Child Left Behind, is a step in the right direction. There are a lot of aspects of that bill that move the decision-making down to the state, and I think, so I think that's, we're moving in the right direction in that regard. Sure, there should, I don't have any trouble with with national standards. It's just that state, that should not be imposed from the federal level. States should be making decisions on the standards that they think work best for their students, and that's the way we've done it in Pennsylvania, and I think that's the way it should remain. In your TV commercials, uh, one of the things I noticed is that uh, you talk about declaring war on ISIS. Right. What does that mean? I mean, you're looking for an actual declaration of war, correct? Uh, I would support a declaration of war, absolutely. I mean, this this uh, we have created a vacuum in the Mideast that has allowed for the rise of, of radical Islam, uh, with a stated goal of destroying us. Um, I mean, that is something we should be responding to much more aggressively than I think we currently have. And so I what think, would a declaration do? So I think it just means that we decide that we're going to destroy them before they reach our shores or before they can expand further. Um, and we commit the resources to 
work with uh, the Iraqis and others there, um, uh, you know, provide the tools and training or whatever it may be to ensure that uh, um, that they're defeated. And I'm trying to touch on as many issues sure. as I can here in the last uh, a few minutes. Illegal immigration. Right. Uh, you have said that uh, you, this is one of your top priorities is to make sure that someone uh, who is undocumented does not come into this country. So, you know, I, I, when I saw that, I automatically thought of, you know, Donald Trump deporting uh, 11, 12 million in this country. Do you support that? Well, so I, one of my priorities is to ensure that we have a legal immigration system that works uh, and that, uh, you know, we, we're a country of immigrants. Um, it gets back to the American dream. We should be welcoming people who want to come here, work hard, provide for their families, and, and succeed. That's what we're about as a country, and we should welcome people. Um, however, uh, we know now there are people coming to the country uh, across our borders, or they're overstaying their visas, and we don't even know who's here. And we also have seen real examples in France of of people, uh, you know, terrorists uh, trying to get into a country and, and actually killing people as a result of it. So we know people want to come here to hurt us. And so you have to start. We do need to secure our borders. We need to know who is coming here. And that's a part of what I think we should be, of the comprehensive reform that uh, we should be doing in our uh, immigration system. I'm, I'm doing this quickly, yeah, sure, Senator, but sure. uh, two questions out of that. Support building a wall and uh, yeah, support, deporting those 11, 12 million people. Yeah, um, so I support uh, securing our border, whether that's a physical wall. Um, I don't know. I mean, it could be partially that. We have walls in some areas. It could be technology and it could be increased resources for our border patrol but yes i support securing the border um you certainly you want to start if someone is here they're undocumented they're here have not come through the legal channels uh, and they've committed a criminal act uh then yeah they should be deported okay, criminal act but what yeah. about you know just yeah, being so, in so, i i guess reason i'm asking is logistically whether that is possible no I, I don't think it is possible and we don't even know the exact number who are here but it, it's going to be impossible to uh, deport 11 million people if that is the number so you know you have to we're a nation of rule of law so you have to start with that concept they can't jump in line ahead of of others who have been waiting for years to get in um so Sorry, yes, I want to. Yeah. I have to interrupt, but I sure. want to give you thirty seconds to leave a message for voters. Like yeah, all candidates. I, it's thank you for having me here, and, and it has been a wonderful privilege to represent the people of the thirteenth senatorial district. I've worked hard to try to find solutions to difficult problems. I hope to have the opportunity uh, to do that in Washington, serving the people of the sixteenth. And so, I'd appreciate your vote and your support, Senator Lloyd Smucker. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow, we have a Smart Talk road trip. We'll be talking election and politics from uh, the Cornerstone Coffee House at, uh, at uh, Market Street in Camp Hill. So be sure to stop in and join us.